This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Hello and welcome to the Shakti Hour podcast on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. I'm your host, Melanie Moser, and today I'm sharing a conversation with author and speaker Lynn McTaggart. Lynn is an award-winning journalist and the author of seven books, including her most recent, The Power of Eight, The Field, The Intention Experiment, and The Bond. I ran into Lynn actually in New York City last fall at an event uh, in Tribeca and reached out and we finally got a chance to chat just now this spring, I think it's pretty fascinating what Lynn has uncovered and and blending the scientific understanding of the power of our thoughts, the power of our intention, and our own energy focused on healing and altruism to bring us into a state of oneness and even spiritual ecstasy through using our minds and hearts combined to create a better world for us all. So I hope you'll enjoy this uh, conversation and please uh, do remember to subscribe to the Shakti Hour on iTunes and leave us a rating and review. You can follow along at Shakti Hour on Twitter. And of course, all of this information can be found at BeHereNowNetwork.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm here with Lynn. Lynn's in London. I'm in New York. And we're going to get right into this. Because I need to know, Lynn, how you got on this path to begin with. Where did your desire to know more, to understand, to connect with the universe in a deeper way begin? I mean, I think I've always had that in me, a desire to understand some of the big questions and to ask some of the big questions, you know, about life after death and consciousness and all those kinds of things. But I have a background, a solid background uh, as an investigative reporter. That's where I started out life. So I have a natural skepticism that comes with that kind of job. And so I have always looked to scientific evidence for understanding certain spiritual beliefs. And I really got into this by accident in the 1990s um, because I am co-owner and co-editor of a publication called What Doctors Don't Tell You um, that I started with my husband back in 1989. And 
in the early 1990s, I kept coming across really good studies of things like spiritual healing. And I kept thinking to myself, well, um, if you can have a thought and send it to someone else, well, that in itself undermines everything we think about how the universe works. So I set out to try to understand that and find out about it. Um, and it was really a journey without a compass. I didn't know what I was looking for. Um, but I started talking to frontier scientists in consciousness research, and I was soon astonished to find out that each of them were finding out a little piece of a puzzle that together compounded into a completely new science, a completely new view of the world. And so that kind of sucked me in. And from there, it's really been asking more questions about it. So when I wrote my first book in this area of the field, it was about this whole, these whole discoveries and the fact that we're part of this giant quantum energy field and many other aspects that are very different from what we've been told. But the unfinished business was all about thoughts. Um, the, there was a lot of scientific evidence that thoughts are not only things, but things that affect other things. So a lot of my questioning from there is, well, how far can you take it? Right, right. How far can you take it? And what's interesting to me is that you came at this from the point of view of, as you said, a, a journalist. And I really think that, that any good seeker, any good spiritual seeker is, is looking for the truth, right? That's what a, a journalist mm -hmm. is sifting through, see what's happening, trying to get an unbiased, clear understanding of the truth, correct? Absolutely. But was there any, do, were you raised with any kind of spiritual beliefs or with a, in the church or in a, around that before you stepped into journalism? I grew up Catholic, Roman Catholic, and that was too extreme a religion for me. Um, I was always, I think I've always been spiritual in the sense that I've always thought that human beings are something more than um, chemical signals and electrical, you know, discharges. Um, and I've always thought there is something more. And I've been drawn to the esoteric in lots of ways. But there, there is that hard-nosed element to me that always seeks proof. So I really right. didn't get it from home. I think, you know, my parents were not um, super Catholic. Um, you know, we went to church on Sunday, but um, some of the ideas in and teachings of Jesus made a lot of sense to me. Some of the um, uh, the more stringent areas of the church um, did not. So I really had to find my own spiritual path. Right. Like, you know, really honestly, that all of us do. And, and to tuning into your individual way of seeking... I find is so, um, so powerful. And I, I honestly, I'm, I'm highlighting this about your particular story because I, I want to talk about uh, all of your work, but I love the kind of the trajectory of the unfolding of your research to landing where you are now in this kind of, uh, I mean, this is my summary 
uh, like a communal understanding of holding each other in healing and intention. That's how I see the, the power of eight. But then, you know, going back to what most inspires me is, is your work with the field and the kind of the far out, but rooted in real research stuff that's in that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were scientists finding, you know, there were so many scientists who were making amazing discoveries. And this was their discoveries were from the 1970s and 80s. And I was writing the book in the late 90s. So these people had made these discoveries. They were part of prestigious universities in the main, but a lot of them had been marginalized. Their work had been marginalized because it didn't fit, you know, into uh, the accepted conventions. And so I was also blown away. I mean, we had the late Dr. Carl Pribram basically saying a neuroscientist and really applauded in many areas, basically, you know, the discoverer of the limbic system, basically saying all of our higher cognitive functions aren't locked inside our skulls. They're not in our brain. They're out there in the field. And our brain accesses it almost like a television set accesses a broadcast from somewhere else. You know, you had Jacques Benveniste, uh, an award-winning biologist, um, French biologist, um, who had discovered so many parts of and aspects of allergies, really been lauded by that, um, who suddenly discovered that molecules actually communicate to other molecules, not by chemicals, but by frequency. And on and on and on, how put off a, you know, an, a physicist, even an astrophysicist, who basically says, we're all part of this giant energy field, and that gives us the ability to access information from source anywhere, anywhere in the universe. So these guys were saying stuff really far out. Robert John, Princeton University Dean of Engineering, basically saying and testing out with hundreds of thousands of studies um, that you can send intention, your thoughts, to sensitive electronic equipment and actually influence it. So all of these guys were basically saying things that completely completely change everything we think about how we work in the world and how the world works. And the, and uh, pop, the, the light guy, I forget pop. I remember his name. Prince yeah. Albert pop. Also the late, I mean, so many of these guys are dying now or have, have died. Uh, the late Fritz Albert pop German physicist, brilliant discovery that human beings and all living things emit a tiny current of light. And this light is basically the driver in DNA that drives all the bodily functions in his view, but also it also communicates with the outside. Other living things send back light when they receive our light and send it back synchronicitously, almost like we're having a conversation in light. And so all of these kinds of discoveries really, really change our ideas about what it is to be human. Right. And so, and, and so this, the, the light thing, I mean, all the thought thoughts and uh, the field and those things have, have kind of entered into 
they trickled down the new age into mainstream in a, in a certain way, right? People are mm. accepting of that in a way now. But the light thing yes. still kind of stands out to me as something that um, hasn't yet, maybe in a, you know, maybe in a, in an Eastern uh, experiences, you know, with like a saint or a guru or a teacher that transmission, the idea of darshan that is encompassed in that. But have we embraced this idea of being beings of light in a Western way? Is that, um, I think it, you know, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think to some degree, some people are acknowledging the genius of his work. Um, there are 40, 50 scientists who are seeing how brilliant this was and its implications that we're sending out a certain level of light that it's global and it drives bodily functions, but it also communicates with the outside all the time. And there's some evidence that thoughts are in just another light and that our, uh, that our thoughts are trespassers that essentially we can enter into other people and things. And that's certainly been, been testing this out in many of the workshops and retreats that I hold for many years. And that's certainly the case. Um, we see all the things that perfect strangers can pick up each other's thoughts, you know, with almost no instruction from me. Right. And so what is the value in that? from a spiritual point of view or from a scientific point of view, both? Well, there's several values. I mean, first of all, we have to understand that our thoughts aren't locked inside our heads, that they are, that we are leaky buckets, as I like to put it, and that we're leaking out our thoughts all the time. So other people are experiencing our thoughts in one way or another. And most people, like most people, most people have pretty much three quarters of the time they're thinking something negative. They're making a judgment. They have a negative, some sort of negative feeling about themselves. You know, as a good friend of mine once said, um, if we said aloud to other people what we think about ourselves, we wouldn't have any friends. <laughs> and that is so true. Um, we're, you know, we're making judgments. We're making judgments of about other people. There's flotsam and jetsam going through our, our heads all the time. It's all unconstructed sludge, basically. And all of those, every last mendacious thought, all of that stuff together becomes an intention and essentially becomes your life's intention. That's what you're beaming out to the world. And people are picking it up. People are being influenced by it. So we have to understand that thoughts aren't just things, they're influencers. And they're so not just ours. Huge. What I like is, yeah, it's not just it's, ours. It's, yeah. No, exactly. It's everybody. It's, it's everybody's. We're picking up, we're sending, we're receiving. We're a television set and a television station all at the same time. So we are having not only an effect in that people can pick this up, but we're actually influencing them. I mean, one of the things that I did after writing The Field was I was left with this unfinished business about what thoughts are. And I kept thinking to myself, are we talking about, you know, a very subtle effect in terms of the influence of a thought, like, you know, a shift of a quantum particle? Or are we talking about curing cancer? And also what happens when lots of people are thinking the same thought at the same time? 
does that magnify the effect? And so I set up a thing called the intention experiment. Because by then I knew a lot of scientists in consciousness research, and I had readers around the globe because the field was in 30 languages by then. And so I thought, well, I'll just put this all together, and uh, it'll make the biggest global laboratory in the world. And so that's what I did. I, every so often, one of these scientists would set up a well-controlled experiment in their laboratory or out in the field, and then I would invite my readers to come on my website or I'd invite an audience, if I were speaking somewhere, to send an intention together to that target to try to affect it. And we've run 33 of these experiments by now, um, a, a number to try to make seeds grow faster or change elements, you know, very, very elemental elements of a plant to making purifying water in a load of different experiments to, we've run uh, seven experiments trying to lower violence in war-torn or very violent areas. And we've even tried to cure somebody of PTSD. And of those 33 experiments, 29, as measured by these prestigious scientists, have shown measurable, positive, mostly significant effects. So we have solid evidence that thoughts affect other things, even in countries at war. So it just seems like um, we're getting into this science of this in a way as a species, <laughs> as a human intelligence, where we're just beginning to comprehend what the ramifications are of, of, our, of our individual vibration. Yeah, and collective vibration. Because remember for me, the work really morphed into looking at groups. What happens right. when lots of people are thinking the same thought at the same time? And by lots of people, it can be a group of eight, which I've done lots of experiments with and lots of, and that's my work at the moment, the power of eight. And also groups of 25,000 people sending an intention to lower violence in a war-torn area like Afghanistan. So yeah, we're starting to see that our thoughts are really powerful. They're not just things locked inside our skull. They're an energy that can create an energy that changes things. Right. So then, so then what about this word of resonance? You write about resonance in, in the field, but so how does resonance play into this relationship with intention? Well, okay. Um, one of the things, that happens to people um, when they're doing a same thing, let's say even playing an instrument together, very quickly their brains, brain waves become entrained. Now think of a pendulum swinging back and forth. Think, imagine you've got two of them and they're not swinging in the same way, they're swinging in opposite ways. And after a while there's an energy transfer so that they end up swinging the same way back and forth the same way. Well, that's a bit like what happens with brainwaves. People get entrained with each other and their brainwaves become the same. There's something more that happens though in power of eight groups and intention experiment groups. Um, I really needed to know what, what happened and why these things were happening in my power of eight groups because I set them up just really accidentally. I was trying to figure out how to scale down the big intention experiments into a workshop. 
2008, and uh, I ran one of my workshops in Chicago. I was just kicking around the idea with my husband, and I said, well, I don't know, maybe I'll just put people in groups of eight and have them send intention to each other, uh, send intention to somebody in the group with a health challenge. And my husband's the one who said, yeah, I love it, the power of eight. He's, he's also a journalist, good headline writer. So that's how it came about, totally by accident. I never expected it to be anything more than a feel-good effect. But what ended up happening is after people have this experience, the groups went into circles, sent an intention to a member of the group with a health challenge, and the next day they came back and they said stuff like, I have a wobbly knee and um, I'm due for knee replacement and I'm walking normally today. Um, you know, I have cataracts and I'm 80% better. Um, I have depression and it feels lifted and, you know, on and on and on. I have scoliosis and my back is straighter and it doesn't hurt anymore. And I, I didn't believe it at first. I thought this is just a placebo effect until I found that it worked even on people who didn't believe it was going to work. It worked on babies, it worked on fetuses. But the point was, I kept watching this over and over again, these instant healings. And it convinced me that something else is going on. And the reason I say it's something bigger than in resonance is that um, I spent a number of years trying to figure out what on earth was going on here. And one of the things that I was lucky enough to do was work with Life University, one of the biggest chiropractic universities in the world, um, to do studies of these power of eight groups, to find out why they were so powerful. And what they discovered using student volunteers, we ran seven of these groups. They'd never meditated before even. These were not practiced individuals. And very soon after starting a group, we would put a um, EEG cap on one of the senders. And we found very soon after this group started, there would be a global lowering of the parts of the brain that are involved with worry, uh, doubt, negativity, the right frontal lobe, and also the parts of the brain that make us feel separate. The parietal lobes, which sit in the back of the head toward the back, they help us to navigate through space and determine what's me and what's not me, and they were dialed way down too. So all of the parts of the brain involved in negativity and separation were turned way down. And so what these were, were brainwave signatures of people in a, in a state of ecstatic oneness. And they were virtually identical to the studies created by um, University of Pennsylvania looking at Sufi masters and Buddhist monks and they found that, you know, these were virtually identical to the results that they had seen with these people. But the only difference was, of course, it, it takes years of practice to be a Buddhist monk and, and hours of priming to become, you know, to start chanting as a Sufi master. And our guys were student volunteers who hadn't even meditated. All they had, had was like a 12-minute video from me. And yet they had this amazing experience and of course we saw some of it in that talk i gave in the in the summer in the karini gallery too correct right and so the so that you're making the distinction between just a resonance which is 
maybe, you know, like being in the presence of Christ or being in the presence of a saint where that transmission just resonates through you versus you're saying, if I just have this instruction that I have that capacity in the support of, of a group. I don't, it's not, we have the capacity to move, move beyond separation. And I think what's going on in the groups and it's a mix of the power of intention, group, group intention, the power of groups themselves, which create, as one psychologist put it, a kind of collective effervescence. The power of altruism, because these groups are all about both sending and receiving. So a lot of people have amazing experiences when they're senders, not just receivers. But then the other aspect of it is... Um, this feeling of it's kind of a a mystical experience this ecstatic oneness that people feel and you know all of the mystical traditions attempt to get us to this state and they go people go through all kinds of extreme circumstances in order to reach that state of enlightenment here you can access it within minutes all it takes is a group. You know, you don't need a sweat lodge or, you know, you don't need to be a Sufi master. You just need a group. And it's a fast track to the miraculous. So what, is there some way that this is going to benefit us? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, every way it benefits you. I mean, what I did was I looked at groups um, over time to see what happened when people meet regularly in their group and send intention for a member of the group. And I found, I studied one group of 250 over an entire year. And I found that of those people who met regularly, pretty much 100% of them had major life transformations. Many of them healed ongoing and chronic illnesses like chronic fatigue or depression. Others had amazing financial windfalls. They, um, you know, they got money just when they needed it and just the right sum. Other people, even if they were middle-aged, got incredible new jobs. Other people found a new purpose in life, you know, and on and on it went. Now, sometimes it didn't work for people. And there were a few where it didn't work initially. So one of them was a woman called Andy who um, was just going through a divorce, had two young children, and needed a new job. Um, she had sold her gift store business, and she needed something new. And she was um, trying every way to get a job, and she couldn't get one. And she was a very talented young woman. So we worked with her doing this, that, and the other. It wasn't working. And I finally just said, Andy, just get off of yourself. Start intending for someone else and the someone else I had in mind was a young boy called Luke whose stepfather wrote us in about him um, he was 15 years old and uh, had broken up with his first serious girlfriend and in a fit of adolescent angst he threw himself off a 40-foot structure onto hard ground and now the doctors didn't even think he was going to live Luke broke every bone in his body he got nerve damage brain damage etc so on three consecutive Sundays, I had that whole group of 250 send intention to Luke 
while his stepfather kept up a running commentary of what was going on with Luke while we were sending intention. And big leaps in progress seemed to happen every time we were sending intention. And Luke got out of the hospital in record time. But even essentially more interesting was what happened to Andy. The moment she got off of herself and started intending for Luke, Andy got a call out of nowhere from somebody she didn't even know offering her her dream job. And this was after months and months and months of trying and failing to get even a lead. And this happened over and over again. So many times where I realized it was something beyond coincidence, that there is some sort of powerful energy that occurs with altruism. And that isn't something that's really talked about in the self-help business very much. You know, it's all about self-help. You know, it's in the title itself. Right. <laughs> but um, one well, of the so things there's... I discovered was the power of altruism. You know, that when you look at the science, it's like a bulletproof vest. You know, people who do things for other people live longer, happier, healthier lives. Right, and this is kind of what you explore in the bond. This, uh-huh. right? This yeah, is we the, were never meant to be the kind of dog eat dog, dog competitive that we are. I mean, that's really what I asked the question with the bond was: was Darwin right? And there was a resounding answer: No. You know, human beings need belonging. We need groups more than we need food. Essentially, you know, the worst thing you can do to anyone is to um, is to banish them from a community um, because, you know, even suicides kill themselves because of what psychologists call excessive individuation. You know, they feel left out. So we need belonging. It's really central to us. So give me a re- your reflections after your decades of, you know, exploring this from a scientific and a journalistic point of view. How has it shaped your own experience of yourself in the world? I had to go through some really major changes because, you know, there was a big skeptical part of me, even though my work oftentimes looked at those big questions, those big, you know, spiritual questions. Um, My work has always been rooted in, in fact and hard evidence. And that is the hallmark of the books that I do is loads and loads of research, etc. Although I try to write in a, you know, in ordinary lay English so that people, you know, people can get it. Um, but all of a sudden, what really derailed me was suddenly having these instant miracles right in front of me. You know, thousands of them. People getting, people with incredible illnesses people scheduled for surgery, people throwing away their crutches, being able to cancel their surgery, you know, in a 10 minute intention. So for me, this was almost absurd. I had a long, I, I did not believe it for many years. I had a hard time believing it. I was the essentially a 21st century doubting Thomas. And I had to go through a journey of studying it from every angle, saying, I know I can explain this somehow. And the placebo effect, it was well beyond placebo effect because somebody like Luke, for instance, 
being a typical 15-year-old, thought his parents' belief in the power of intention was stupid. So it couldn't be placebo effect that he got out of the hospital in record time. Other people were skeptics in my workshops and, and groups, and when I was giving delivering addresses about it, and they'd get healed, even if they were skeptical about it. Um, so I realized it was something beyond placebo, and then the more I looked, it was something beyond intention, it was something beyond even altruism. As much as altruism definitely plays a role, you know, people who live lives of service have much healthier immune systems, even than people who are, you know, living the dream life. They're living the dream. They've got all the money in the world. They've got all the, the vacations in the world. You know, they're just rolling in it. And there was one study comparing the two, and they found that those kinds of people had terrible immune systems. They were going to drop like flies. They called them pleasure seekers. Whereas people who were living a life of service had incredibly robust immune systems. So I saw all of that. And it all made sense to me, but there was some little other X factor going on with these power of eight groups. And that was the part I really had to accept that maybe I didn't have to explain it all. Maybe it was just, you know, when people come together in groups, miracles just happen. And so that, for me, was a huge leap of just saying, this is important. I can explain about 90% of this, but there's a 10% X factor here. And let's just go with this. Right, the mystery of life. So I, I love your story. And, and since this is the Shakti Hour, which focuses on women's voices, I'd love to... have your reflection on being a woman in science who has come <laughs> now into this mystery of spirituality and that identification for you? Well, it's kind of fun because um, when I'm on stage and we're, it's anything having to do with the science of spirituality, I'm the only girl on stage. You know, there's, there's Bruce Lipton and Greg Braden and Joe Dispenza and all of those guys, Deepak Chopra, who have done this, you know, for many years, and I'm the girl. Um, I think it's fun because it gives me a different perspective. I think, you know, women are incredibly practical creatures. Um, you know, we have to be. We have to raise other people. You know, we have to create people. And that, plus my own experience as a mother, I have two grown daughters, uh, now 29 and 22, and that having that experience has been a, a really interesting thing for me too number one i didn't really get going into what has become my life's work until after i'd had children so fairly late on um and you know well after i had children so that i could focus on writing the field um and um so that was one element of it and the other element i think was the practical nature, I think, you know, um, very broadly speaking, because I don't like cliches and to typecast people, but men tend to be much more theoretical. You know, oftentimes can get in, in my field can talk a lot more theory. And my work now is very much rooted in this is what you can do. This is what you need to do. Get into power of eight groups. Um, this is how you can 
make use of this amazing new science. This is how you can take it into your life. And that was always, I think, my desire and intention because once I did the field, I kind of realized, well, if we're not separate, you know, we're part of this energy field, we can reach out and receive information in the furthest uh, reaches of the cosmos. Well, that changes everything. You know, we have to come up with a new way to live, a new way to be. You know, we have to totally start over, basically. And so that's been my preoccupation since the field is trying to figure out, okay, how do we live this? Right. What's the embodied, the embodied spirit of the, of the feminine, the Shakti embodied? And the, I'm thinking also just with the word field from the Bhagavad Gita, the field and the knower of the field. And that, that spacious intellectual energy of the masculine and the coming into form, like you said, I have to, it's very practical. This is my body. There's another being in it. It needs to eat pancakes on Saturday morning. Very much, <laughs> very much down to the earth. And so I've, that's really, that's really lovely. And I love, um, it's interesting to me how your path also included motherhood before the dissemination of this knowledge. And now is coming back to this kind of, um, practicality of getting the kids all around the dinner table (laughs) to, yeah. <laughs> to make to set this intention, you know, to set this intention. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a it's a common situation too with with women who are trying to have children. The whole myth of having it all is pretty tough. Um, and although we launched our publication, What Doctors Don't Tell You, when I was pregnant with our first child, um that was as far as I could really take it. I had to wait until the children were, you know, of a decent age to really dive down with the field. But I can remember even researching that book and bringing them along with me to California and uh, spending Halloween in, <laughs> in Northern California. And while my husband would play with them and uh, for a couple of hours, I would go interview one of the scientists. So I was starting to do it then, but it really came to fruition when they got a bit older. And I think, you know, one of the great things about being a woman is you can have that experience, but you also have all this time after children um, where you've got, you know, Margaret Mead always called it postmenopausal zest, where you just come into your own, you know, after you have your kids. Finally, you can focus on other work. And there's all that energy that got put into all that home, home stuff even if you are a full-time worker. Um, The other thing that fascinates me is, you know, I I do this work and it's well-known, et cetera, but I'm so interested with my daughters who have always felt this way. Um, I'm just mom, you know? And when I talk to them, I never talk to them about what the work I do. I just listen to what's going on with them, you know, on, on the ear. So I find that a really interesting and grounding experience, too. That's so beautiful, Lynn. Well, this has been great. I'm, I'm going to close and, and offer you this question that I ask all of my guests, which is if you had a specific piece of advice for women and girls on the spiritual path, 
Yeah. I mean, I think my advice just following on from that is it's never too late to follow your dream. You know, we have a certain time limit for having children. You know, that's getting extended these days with modern science, but we do have an, a time limit. So if you want to have children, if you want to have that side of your life, it's never too late to do something else. You know, as I say, I've, I've, I've seen it in my own life where a whole career unfolded relatively late in life. And it's I'm on this incredible new journey that I never expected to be on. You know, I, I, I didn't expect this when I was in my 20s. You know, I was busting babies selling rings with hidden tape recorders. I certainly never expected to be following this kind of spiritual path. So, you know, life gives you many opportunities and you can grab them at any point. And what would the intention that you would offer to women who are creating this life for themselves? What What's the intention that you would offer them? My intention, my, <clears throat> my advice to women who want to create this kind of full life is tell the universe what you want. Um, one of the real important elements of intention in my experience is being specific. So be specific and embody that. So if you want to be a best-selling author, walk around with a, a, a fake book jacket. Um, put your name at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Embody it. But tell the universe what you want. And if you don't know what you want, find yourself a group, which would be my next bit of advice. Find yourself a group and meet every week and help, let them help you find the path. Let them help intend for you that you find your life's work. Perfect. Amazing. Thank you so much, Lynn, for your time. It's really been a treat to talk oh, to you. Oh, you're very welcome. And I, I, I really encourage all the listeners to go to Lynn's website, check out all of her books, and uh, all that information will be on the Shakti Hour page at BeHereNowNetwork.com. And uh, what's your next event, Lynn? Well, we're running an amazing uh, retreat in Spain. Um, we are running it in two former monasteries, um, which are now luxury hotels in the Rioja district of Spain. And the reason we're holding them there is that there's some really good evidence that uh, there's an e extra resonance effect and an extra kind of field effect um, in sacred spaces. And we found that last year at our retreat in Tuscany when we did power eight groups in the tomb of St. Francis of Assisi. It was an extraordinary so we're going to be doing that and we're going to be going really deeply into why intentions don't work and oftentimes what the reason is because of the past and how the past gets in the way and frustrates your own ability to manifest the life you want. So I'm working, I'm working on that now. That'll be really exciting in October and we'll be, you know, trying to make wine as well as we'll have some downtime too to visit some beautiful cities in Spain, including Madrid and um, to make wine and even learn flamenco. So it should be amazing. And 
it's on my website, lynnmctaggart.com. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lynn. And thank you for all your work. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.